Welcome to the Agronomy and Farm Management Podcast. I'm Amanda. And I'm Elizabeth. Thanks for joining us today. Today we're going to talk about a pretty problematic weed, at least west of here, becoming more of an issue in Ohio, especially if you're on that um, border over there in the western part of the state. Um, We've got a special guest all the way from Illinois. Um, Aaron, go ahead and introduce yourself. Uh, my name is Aaron Hager. I'm an associate professor of extension weed science in the Department of Crop Sciences at the University of Illinois. We are also joined by our resident weed specialist, Mark Gilhead. Hi, everyone. Mark Lauk, Ohio State uh, resident weed specialist. Great, Aaron. To kick us off, would you like to tell us how you got into this line of work? Uh, well, I, I jokingly tell people I was never smart enough to be a farmer, so this was always my fallback routine. But um, in, in all truthfulness, um, I really had no idea what I wanted to do when I ended up going to my undergraduate career at SIU Carbondale. But I was always fascinated by seeing these large pieces of spray equipment pull into a field and unfold these massive booms, which at the time was probably no more than about 60 feet long. And you could actually spray something and some plants died and other plants didn't die. And so that was always a curiosity to me. And it was further cultivated when I had interactions with Dr. George Capusta at SIU, who actually uh, was one who gave me good direction on pursuing a master's degree at Michigan State University with Dr. Karen Renner. And ultimately ended up back at the University of Illinois as an extension specialist in weed science where I finished a PhD. And... uh, uh, faculty position came open, uh, one that was held for many, many years by Dr. Marshall McLamory, and I've been there ever since. So that's that's how I ended up where I am. So really, we know we're all dealing with resistant weeds at this point, um, and that's come into play, would you say, like the late 90s? You know, it, it really depends a little bit regionally. I go back and look at our records, and we probably first documented resistance in Illinois maybe the early to mid-80s in with triazine resistant common lambs quarters and kind of put things in perspective when I got back to Illinois in 1993 I think we had about no more than three different species that we had documented resistance in in the state I think we're now up to 11 or 12 so in 27 years I've either really done a good job of finding these things or I've really screwed everything up and I'm I'm really not sure which I'm not sure I really know the answer to that either. Clear development I mean our our development was ALS resistance probably first. I mean, if you look at water hemp specifically, because it, it's, um, which is, I mean, and you and Pat there at Pat Trano in Illinois probably have as much expertise in water hemp as anybody does in the country, I think, right? Well, we worked on, a, I think I did my first plot work with water hemp in 1996. So that was, what, 24 years ago. Right. And that Put was up my first plot work that, with that. So that was when it was developing ALS resistance. So, Correct. So, mm-hmm. Has it kind of cycled? Because I know some of our weeds like Maristil's kind of cycled depending on resistance and what herbicides we have available. You know, it, it's been really interesting to watch, Mark, because, um, and I'll give you sort of a, a, a little snapshot of the history of this. Of course, you know, water hemp's indigenous to Illinois. It's always been there. But until about 30 years ago, we really, there, there were two people in Illinois who even recognized what it was. And one I just mentioned, Dr. McGlamory, and the other was my PhD advisor, Dr. Wax. But, um, for some reason, and resistance played a, a large role in this, you know, about the early part of the 1990s, late 80s, we started to see a lot of expansion of water hemp uh, out of its historic area of distribution, which roughly, if you know Illinois, from Interstate 70, roughly Effingham over to St. Louis, 
If you would go south of Interstate 70, predominantly that's where water hemp originated from. But we began to see it moving more to the north uh, and somewhat fairly rapidly. Now we, we started our first plot work in 1996 and we actually had to travel about two and a half hours to the southwest to do plot work. Now the reason we did that, and it, you know, you do the math, that's five hours of windshield time. And that's, you know, it's not really efficient use of time and I, I get it, I'm a state employee and we're not really that efficient. But the only reason that we really did it, that's where it was. We did not have a, a good water hemp population to work on in Champaign County, Illinois. Now you fast forward, you know, 25 years and we don't have that issue anymore. We can pretty much find water hemp distributed from the very northern part of the state, you know, throughout the, the, uh, the remainder of the southern, eastern, western, and central part of Illinois. And as we've tracked resistance over time, you're absolutely right. Uh, we were dominated by ALS chemistry throughout a large part of the late 1980s into the 1990s, especially on the soybean side of things. And those products used to be very effective against water hemp. But as the populations evolved resistance to it, it became fairly obvious that that line of chemistry was going to, by itself, it was not going to be as effective anymore. Right. And then, oh. Can I just, for people who might not be familiar with the terminology, can you give us a few products that would use ALS? Sure. Uh, some ALS products, you know, I guess from, from yesteryears, one of the biggest ones that we had in soybean for many, many years was Pursuit. It came in on the coattails after we had some issues with scepter carryover back in uh, 87, 88 during the drought year. Uh, others would have been at the time uh, Classic, for example. Pinnacle was another commonly used one in soybean. Uh, Accent and Beacon were two widely used uh, ALS inhibitors for corn, principally for grass control. So then you, so then Roundup Ready came along and you controlled it for a while and then kind of cycled back to glyphosate resistance or did it never really get under control? Yeah, we, we sort of tried to patch the, the, the ALS problem for a long time by throwing some PPO or diphenyl ethers in with some of the pursuit containing products for a lot of years. And we, we sort of limped along, if you would, for a few years with that. But anybody who really understands water hemp knows that the, the, the efficacy of PPOs is very much size dependent. And once you get past roughly about a four inch tall plant, you've got about as equal probability of missing it in the long run or having that plant treated plant recover as you do actually controlling it. So 1996 was the first year we had glyphosate resistant soybean. And it really didn't take long for a lot of people to say, boy, this, this works. And we really don't have to worry a whole lot about you know, what rate do we need? Because if we just add a little bit more and we can go after some bigger weeds, we don't really have to worry a lot about additives. AMS carries us the whole way. And why worry about tank mixes now? This seems to be the, the, the one product that's really going to carry us into the future. And I sort of lost track of the number of people that said, we don't need you weed science people anymore. I mean, we got, we have life Satan. It's, it's never going to break down. It's never going to fail, but I can't find too many people now in Illinois who say that anymore. <laughs> I remember when I was working um, for crop consultant and some of the comments from people were, well, you don't need to identify that weed. It's a Roundup Ready deal. <laughs> yeah. So, and that wasn't how long ago. We first identified glyphosate resistance in water hemp. I believe it was 2006. I think it was after a year after Dr. Bradley identified it in Missouri. <clears throat> and we did a couple years of field work on a population and we, we felt reasonably confident to develop some recommendations uh, specifically for glyphosate resistant water hemp, which as far as I can find in, in our records, that was the first time that the weeds program at Illinois ever really came out with anything so specific in terms of recommendations. Generally it's fairly broad. Here's your grass products. Here's your broadleaf products. 
And I'll never forget, we used to have a program that we would, extension program that we would do called the corn and soybean classic. And it was a five or six different meetings around the state. And we'd bring six or eight different university specialists to, to speak on that during the day. And in 2000, January of 2008, that was the year that we started launching this idea of these are the specific recommendations around glyphosate resistant water hemp. And I'll never forget because we actually had five specific recommendations. It was a five step approach. And we really caution people as, okay, there's five steps here. That doesn't mean that you take the one that you like the most and disregard the other four. You start at the top and you work away south. And it really took me all of about, I'm guessing maybe no longer than two minutes and 16 seconds in every presentation. And I had absolutely no credibility left with the audience. And the reason was that back in 2008, we actually had almost the audacity to come out and recommend to Illinois soybean farmers that not only do you need to use a soil residual herbicide, you need to use it at a full labeled rate. Now back then that turned out to be about two, about two steps short of blasphemy because why would we want to do that? That only adds cost to our program. It really can't be as bad as you're describing it. That's just the university trying to scare us. And you know what? As long as Roundup works, we ain't going to do anything different. So we've heard really about every possible reason why they didn't at that time want to do anything other than glyphosate. But what a lot of people didn't realize is that those five steps that we came up with addressed not only glyphosate resistance, but it also they also addressed what we knew was going on with ALS resistance at the time that functionally we had lost that entire line of chemistry against water hemp because ALS resistance is almost ubiquitous for us now. But we also realized what was happening in the background with PPO resistance. And we knew because of all the years we were trying to add the PPOs in with the ALS materials that that type of resistance was also increasing in the background. But, you know, as I'll, as I'll show on a distribution map, uh, you know, as we look at glyphosate resistance over time in the state of Illinois, I was completely ineffective in convincing people that this is real and that we really ought to do something a little bit different to try to stay in front of this. Right. Well, you're not the only one. I mean, the, we, uh, in the state of Ohio, we went back to residual herbicides because of mare's tail because we mm -hmm. didn't get a handle on mare's tail. So it was only when we got to that level of problem that we got to that. Mm -hmm. So, but, but you probably had another, another, what, five or six years before the whole thing blew wide open and then, and then you know, you had glyphosate resistance and then you all went right into, so you had two-way resistance with ALS and then you went right into three-way resistance pretty fast, right, with PPO. Actually, three and, three and four were very close together. Um, you know, we, the, the PPO resistance was something that, again, we knew was really increasing in frequency because when we did go back to residual, using residual herbicide and soybean, the, t the products of choice were soil applied PPOs and you know, we're, we're really trying to, to get the message across to folks that when you think about herbicide resistance, it's not just to foliar applied products because we're selecting for resistance with our soil applied products also. So things like authority and valor, the sulfentrazone, the flumioxacin, we're using a lot more of these products now on, on a very large percent of our soybean acres than we were 10 or 15 years ago. And we could see that the increase in frequency of, a, of PPO resistance was really increasing more rapidly than any other type of resistance that we had in Illinois a few years ago. And part of that, of course, was attributed to the fact we were still trying to, you know, patch the hole with glyphosate with some of the foliar applied PPOs, but we were also doing quite a bit of selection and, and still continue to select with a lot of the soil applies also. 
So do you think if you put a like a another herbicide, I'll say I'll pick site fifteen. We can talk about site fifteen resistance mm -hmm. here in a second, but if, if you put a site fifteen herbicide like dual or whatever with your authority or valid free, does that cut down your selection pressure there? You know, if, if you had asked me that five years ago, I would have said, yes, it does. But anymore, I'm not sure that it does. And, and the reason stems because now, uh, well, let me back up. Historically, our, our group at Illinois has really made, you know, <laughs> quote unquote, living for a lot of years, trying to look at mechanisms of target site resistance. And, you know, Tranel's lab, Reeker's lab, they've done a phenomenal job in looking this and, and better understanding what we, what we have with these types of resistance. But for probably about the last, you know, at least five to maybe even eight years, we've shifted more and more of our focus over to non-target site resistances and, and specifically looking at metabolic resistance. And target site is fairly simple because you have perhaps only one minor change in the conformation of a target site and all of a sudden the herbicide is no longer able to bind it. So that's relatively easy to identify and to explain. But when you get into metabolic resistance, which essentially is where the plants are able to rapidly break down the herbicide, and, and, and by rapidly, I mean so quickly, it doesn't cause any damage to them. The best analogy I can give you is the reason we don't, we don't kill corn with atrazine is because corn breaks it down very, very quickly. Water hemp is now mimicking what corn is doing with products like the group 15s with the HPPD chemistry. And by far and away, most of the triazine resistance that we see in Illinois water hemp populations is not target site based. It's metabolic based. So one of the big challenges with metabolic resistance is where did it come from? Why do we have it? Are we seeing metabolic resistance now in more populations because we've used triazines for 60, 65 years now? Is it because we've used the group 15s for 50 to 55 years now, HPPDs for 25 years? We really don't know the origin of, of what, what really triggered the uptick in these occurrences of metabolic resistance, which really gives us a challenge because if, if we don't know how it evolved, how do we know what the best recommendation is in terms of moving forward with a herbicide control program? We really don't, and I'm not sure anybody really does at this time. Yeah, I think we're stuck there. And just for the listeners, the target site, so PPO is target site and ALS is target site and glyphosate is target site. And then the metabolic is atrazine, HPPD. Does all the metabolic um, convert to 2,4-D also because you have that mutation converts to several sites of atrazine? That's, well, that's, that's a good question. And the two populations that we've studied in depth, the answer is yes. And the irony of, of both of these populations is that we really haven't, we, we weren't made aware of either of these populations because 2,4-D failed to control them. We were actually made aware of these populations because a foliar application of an HPPD did not control the population. So we started doing broad screenings in the greenhouse. And all of a sudden we looked at these plants after we were sprayed with 2,4-D and we saw a lot of the symptomology you would normally associate with a sensitive plant, but 14 days later, they had essentially recovered. And so now, you know, the, the other thing that we have to contend with in metabolic resistance is that we really have no predictability. What still works versus what does not work anymore, because why in the world would a population that never had been sprayed with 2,4-D turns out to be up to 30-fold resistant to it? And why would a 2,4-D resistant water hip population from Nebraska that was selected for 
with multiple applications of 2,4-D for years, why would that population be HPPD resistant? But it is. Right, and so now we have site 15 resistance. Um, you know, do you want to talk about that? I, I think my, I've been telling people, I think that probably comes at least in part from our use of site 15 herbicides like Warren and Dual mm -hmm. and Paroxysulfone in post applications. Yeah. So, what do you think? I, I think that's probably a pretty safe assumption to work under right now. And, and again, this will actually go back to the first case of HPPD resistance that we discovered. And I think we started our first field trial at that site, I think it was 2010, 2011. And so we were doing various experiments there and we had one that was soil applied only products for corn. And we noticed that the level of control with metolachlor, S-metolachlor was much less than we normally expect. And, and certainly orders, you know, greatly less than what we would see with acetochlor. Now, acetochlor, I think everybody would agree, we tend to rate it stronger on small seeded broadleaves like water hemp than we do esmetolachlor. But this, this difference was way too great just to be random chance. And when it was repeated over the years, it actually came out statistically much less than the level of control that we would get from acetochlor, both assessing control on a, on a, a you know, a visual assessment of control as well as density at the end of the growing season. And so we, we kept that in the back of our mind and we really honestly didn't pursue it very much until we found our second population of HPPD resistant water hemp. And, and honestly, on a whim, uh, the graduate student that I had at the time, I asked him when our field season started to go put out about three rates of esmetolachlor for me and about three rates of acetochlor and let me know when you sprayed it and I'll go out and look at it about three or four weeks later. Well, he did that. Lo and behold, we saw the exact same thing. That the level of control with esmetolachlor was so reduced as compared with the level of control that we got from acetochlor. Now, I will confess to everybody listening to this that I am absolutely never in any danger of being nominated for a Nobel Prize. But that just seemed to be way too much of a coincidence. And so we did some more detailed field work on our second location, was able to repeat and confirm our initial observations, moved everything into the greenhouse with some dose response experiments where we had a couple of known sensitive populations. And lo and behold, we, as I'll just cut to the end, we can actually calculate a resistance ratio now with these two populations for all the group 15 products that we looked at. And those would be esmetolachlor, dimethinamide, peroxisulfone, and acetochlor. Now the ratios vary. It tends to be more resistant to esmetolachlor and less resistant to acetochlor. But that really, I guess, in, in my opinion, should not signal everybody needs to switch over from esmetolachlor to acetochlor because you have to remember, even if using acetochlor, the first cohorts that are going to come out of the ground are going to be the resistant. How many products or site of actions are you looking at that are resistant right now? Just to kind of summarize it. Right now, we've, we've actually, not in, in one particular population that we know of, but we have one field population where we can identify resistance to herbicides from six different sites of action. There are seven total that I think have been published now on, on the uh, resistance website in terms of different mechanisms of action that have evolved resistance. So, and I, my colleague, Dr. Trown, did a, a pretty neat correlation the other day, and he, he ran the regression on year, on uh, the instances of multiple resistance over time and what he found is about every five years we add another type of multiple resistance to water hemp. So I'm guessing in probably about another three years we'll find either a seven-way or an eight-way resistant population somewhere. 
I'm going to ask you one more question. Yeah. I think we'll break, right? And then yeah. we'll talk about management. So, and you covered this a little bit already, but mm -hmm. one of the questions I'm getting, and I think it's a really good question, is given what we know about site 15 resistance, and we assume that once we have site 15, it crosses over to some extent to all, every, everything, uh, all the different chemicals there. Um, as I start to get into water hemp issues, do I pull all the stops out and go ahead and use site 15 herbicides in my post program, or do I hold that back until I absolutely need it? Yeah, that's a good question, Mark, and, and I really don't have a, a blanket answer for everything. One thing, you know, we, we still would encourage people to consider using a group 15 in a post program if they know that they've got a very dense and heavy population there. But the caveat now is that don't expect that necessarily to last as long as it would on a sensitive population because how resistance, resistance to our soil residual products manifests itself is that the length of residual control gets less and less. So for example, if you had, let's just pull out a number out of the air, let's say you had four weeks of good residual control of the sensitive population, it's gonna be four minus something on a resistant population. We don't know if it's three weeks, two weeks, it may be you know, a few days less, maybe a few hours less. But again, it's gonna be less than what we would normally associate with a sensitive population. So. If that fits into your management strategy, go ahead and continue to do it, but be aware that, again, that may not be what you need to carry you throughout the rest of the growing season. Right, because that's, what's hap that's what happens with PPO inhibitors. Mm -hmm. So when you have PPO resistance, you still have activity from power and authority. They don't last as Exactly, long. exactly. And the reason is, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, because the, the magnitude of resistance is not that high. And if you think about any soil applied product, we're actually applying these things at orders of magnitude, higher rates, and know what you need to control any germinating seedling at any one point in time. Why do we do that? We want that residual control, of course. Well, I think we're going to have to break this into two episodes. So we'll stop here and make sure you guys join us again in two weeks when we release the next one. Thanks for listening to the Agronomy and Farm Management Podcast. Join us again in two weeks for our next episode.